Welcome to the podcast of the Renew Community. We strive to be a Jesus community who cares about the things Jesus cares about. As we adapt in this season of pandemic, we are meeting in our house churches in person and online as a primary space for worship, formation, connection, and encouragement. Teachings like this are one way we engage with scripture seeking to become more like Christ. These teaching podcasts also serve as a conversation starter for deeper engagement at House Church. We're glad you're listening. Good morning, Renew. I'm Aubrey Dom, and I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about the book of Ruth. So if you haven't already in your house church, I ask that you pause this recording and in your house church, read through chapter one. Um, Ruth has been a good friend to me this past year. I received two books um, about a year ago. One was from Doug. It's the Gospel of Ruth. And I just want to share this because a lot of the background information that I've received about Ruth is from this book. Another book that I got is, Who Are You, you, My Daughter? So this is another book, another great resource. And I um, have shared this with House Church Shepherds as well. Um, But a lot of the background information and historical context come from these books, um, just so so you're aware of that. Um, I'm really excited also that many of you have been involved in Ruth. You have talked with me about it. There has been artwork that's been submitted. There's poetry. There's even a song. So as you can tell, I'm very excited and very giddy about talking about the book of Ruth. And Doug and Ben also said that I could get four weeks, (laughs) which I was really excited. One chapter per week. So the next four weeks, we're going to be diving into the book. So let's start. So God, I ask that as we read this text, that this text will read us. Amen. I'm going to start by a poem by Denise Hall called Naomi. And I wish um, she could read it, but I'll read it. Um, Yeah. A refugee. She was due to famine, she and her family, husband and two sons, fleeing for survival. They didn't know where they've landed. Day by day, they began to adapt. Then all of a sudden, Naomi's husband collapsed. They buried him in the tomb of unknown sands. Life carried on. Naomi's boys began to marry local women who were from Moab. And since they were now familiar, it was no longer scary. Then one after another, Naomi's sons began to die. What may have wandered through her grief-filled mind? Had this all been a lie? Why? 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 Now with two daughters-in-law, Naomi didn't know what to do. So early one morning, the three of them got up and set out to the land Naomi knew. Along the way, she felt it wrong to bring her daughter-in-laws along. Naomi protested they go back home, back to their families, One did, but one did not. It was Ruth, you see. Ruth loved and committed to Naomi, her God, her family. Ruth wouldn't take no for an answer. And so they kept going, Naomi and Ruth, to Bethlehem, where Naomi knew she could take a chance. Her friends would welcome her back since the famine had ceased. In that moment, Naomi felt a little different, like the darkness around her had been delivered. Upon their arrival, Naomi's friends would ask, Is that you, my long-lost friend? 
Naomi said, no, it's bitter now until the very end. Over time, as life became richer, Naomi looked up and knew God was in the picture. He gave her a vision to share with Ruth. Ruth listened and obeyed. She knew it was the truth. The vision God gave to Naomi came to life about the future. Ruth and Boaz married and had a son. Yes, Boaz was a relative of Naomi's and a fine suitor. Naomi's boy is what her friends called him. She wrapped her life around the baby. Then a faithful prophet came along and said, he's part of a line to our Messiah, our Savior. So the lesson here is not to fear. When your environment begins to shift, put to death those things not of God and he will restore the gift. Of life he is waiting for you, yes. Sometimes God pulls us out of those ungodly environments and his love will see you through. Thank you, Denise, for that lovely poem. So as you read chapter one, you might not be aware of it in your translation, but in, some, in the original translation, the book starts with an and, a conjunction. So that helps us know that there's something that came before and in the time of Judges. So the story happens, of course, after the book of Judges. So we have Moses who led the Egyptians, or sorry, who led the Israelites out of Egypt. And they wander around and he leads them for at least 40 years. And then Moses dies and he passes on the baton of leadership to Joshua. And then you have the book of Joshua. Um, and Joshua dies at the end of Joshua, and he tells the people to um, continue to follow God. And for a while, they do. So at the beginning of Judges, it says that the people were following God, listening to him, obeying him. But let me read, um, let me read what happens at the end of Judges because that doesn't last long. And the, the Israelites end up in a cycle of having a, um, having a leader rise up and lead them. But then the Israelites would do what was ever right in their own eyes. And they would end up sinning and they would end up treating each other unjustly. And so the, the ending of Judges, right before we have the book of Ruth, talks about um, just a lot of evil things that they were doing. It says, so when the Benjamites saw that the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. So they just decided they wanted to have wives and they just took women that that was not quite the way to get a wife, <laughs> not the best way, but they decided they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. So that was right in their own eyes. So at that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel's had, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit, whatever they wanted to do. So that's the context of what's happening. So the original readers would understand in the time of Judges. They would understand, okay, when people just did whatever they wanted to do. Continuing the sentence in in the verse verse of Ruth, it says, there was a famine in the land. Let's not breeze over these words. Famine is devastating. This is a time of life and death. There's not extra energy or time for many other things. Malnutrition saps your energy level, your mental energy, and also your immune system so that you're more likely to die from disease or a virus. Isn't that interesting now as we think about the virus that we're experiencing? 
recent research that I read about from the UN said that um, for the first time since the 1990s, extreme poverty will increase, life expectancy will fall, and the world's weakest people will face a return to famine, becoming commonplace again. A near doubling of the number of people facing starvation is likely, mainly because of COVID-19 impacts on poverty. Many girls will be out of school and will never go back. Parents cannot, cannot, cannot confidently expect babies to reach their fifth birthday. The virus itself does not do the most harm in our most vulnerable countries. That comes from impacts like rising food prices, falling incomes, and economic recession. The poorest people in the poorest countries are the hardest hit. I think this, this is a little bit of understanding of what we've been experiencing, and I think it kind of helps us understand the time frame of the Book of Ruth. This was not just a, in the time of famine. This was in a time of survival. So I, I decided to take some liberty and rephrase the first few sentences in Ruth to help us experience what they may have experienced. In the time of civil unrest, there is a pandemic, pandemic in the land. And during this time of COVID-19 pandemic and the noise of the news media of killings and anger and elections, there was a humble family that decided that out of survival and or sanity, they had to leave their country and take a chance elsewhere in a place they knew not and where they would be strangers and immigrants. And who is this humble family? So Elimelech, which means my God is king, and his wife, Naomi, which means my pleasantness. And their two sons, Malone, which means sickness, and Kilion, which means end of the line. So out of necessity and survival, they decide to take their chances in the land and travel east to Moab. And a man went to sojourn in the fields of Moab. They had to leave the house of bread. Isn't that ironic? They had to leave Bethlehem, which is called the house of bread, because there wasn't enough bread to help them survive. Moab was not held in high esteem by the Israelites, and I won't get into that, but if you're interested, you can find that in Genesis 19, 30 through 37. And needless to say, I can imagine that the Moabites were not fans of the Israelites. Can you imagine what you would do for your family in order to keep, stay alive. So Elimelech went with his family to sojourn in Moab. And that phrase, um, that, that idea of sojourn, gives the idea of just temporarily. And I think we can, um, we can understand that. Surely in a month, things will be back to normal. Surely by the end of the summer, things will be back to normal. Definitely by the end of the year. I think the family went to Moab sojourning, hoping, hoping that the famine would be over soon, but they didn't know how long they would stay, and they ended up staying for at least 10 years. And then Elimelech dies, the two sons married Moabite women, and then the two sons died, and then there's no children. So in five short verses, a ton has happened. I know that sometimes Naomi gets a bad rap. As you read in chapter 1, verse 20, she tells the women of 
of Israel when she comes home to Bethlehem. Don't call me Naomi, my pleasantness anymore. Call me Mara, bitterness. We sometimes think that Naomi is whining and think she should just get over things. I have another image here. This, these wood cuttings, by the way, are by the um, artist Margaret Adams Parker. And I shared this resource with House Church Shepherd, so you can find all these images online. So think of what's happened to Naomi in those first five verses. There's, it's the time of judges. There's a famine. She's had to immigrate to another country as a way to survive. She's probably homesick. She has the death of her husband and then the death of her two sons and there's no grandchildren. And then there's widowhood for all three women. Widowhood is not something that I think about much in my late 30s as I parent and work, but statistically I read that from anywhere up to seven out of 10 or nine out of 10 um, women will experience widowhood at some times in their, some part of their life. So I thought about that for a while. I'm grateful that Angela from Renew was willing to answer questions for me. So I, I sent Angela a lot of questions and she so willingly was um, able to answer and said that I could share. So let me read what she shared with me. The word widowhood stirs up lo loss, loneliness, fractured family, loss of identity. Our dreams vanished, our hopes finished, our life has ended. You didn't even know this type of loneliness existed. For the first six months, every day felt like a little more Blaine died to me. I felt numb. There is healing from the trauma of death. I want to find my voice in being a widow, but I don't want to be viewed or operate in widowhood. I take one step in front of the other. I have been walking in the water with Jesus like Peter did, leaning to keep my eyes on Jesus and not the storm. Over and over I saw this verse, be still and know that I am God. And that's from Psalm 46.10. God was preparing me for his fullness. I find agape love in the church. I find strength in God, wisdom through God, healing through the love of God. Renew was part of the team that ministered to me in very practical ways and loved me through it. JR hugged me and I physically felt something break off of me. He was not afraid to hug me when I truly felt shackled. Doug made the first journey with me to the communion table. He listened, comforted, guided, and hugged me. Steve High's hugs became a moment I looked forward to. Love abounded from Clyde and Kim. I still meet with Jesus every Tuesday night at um, Tim and Cindy's house. And I've done that for the past seven years. Kent and Cindy stood with me as the waters rose and receded. They promised me they wouldn't leave me when it seemed as though people were abandoning me. Mike and Deanne prayed for me. Widows are still to be cared for and looked after. Here's some practical ideas. Invite widows over for social times. Share a meal, don't just bring a meal, just listen. Angela, thank you for your wisdom and sharing those words with us and your willingness to be vulnerable in sharing that. And that last practical idea that she said, 
is, is the best thing you'll hear in this teaching. Just listen. And I think that applies to all types of situation. So thank you, Angela, for that. So let's continue. Naomi hears that there's food back home. So she decides to go back. Orpah, which I always <laughs> think is Oprah, but it's not, it's Orpah. And Ruth go back with her. But Naomi tells them to turn back and go back to their homes. As a side note, you see the phrase turn back a lot. And so I'm not going to go into that. I think as a house church, that'd be great to discuss. What does that mean? Turn back. Why is that used over and over? I have ideas, but anyway, they have a better chance of survival if they can marry Moabite men. They both disagree. Of course, Orpah and Ruth say, no, no, we're going to come with you. But that feisty Naomi says, no, turn back, go back. And as you can see, Chrissy's image, um, Chrissy created this. And I think this is a really powerful image of that moment. Um, yeah, it was good to reflect on that. Thank you, Chrissy, for pro providing that. So Op Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah decides to go back. And it is a sensible thing to do. She isn't bad for doing that. It makes sense. It, who knows what her life is going to be like? So she decides to go back. But look at the contrast of Ruth. Ruth, who is strong and just as defiant as Naomi, says that she will not leave. This beautiful, almost poem-like quality of these famous words. And um, let me show you. Let me show you another image. Very similar to what Chrissy has created. Here's another woodcut image of that scene. Don't press me to leave you, to turn back from following after you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay the night, I will stay. Your people are my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So may Yahweh do to me, and may he add more to that. It is only death that will come between me and you. Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, and so Naomi gave up speaking, and they just went on their way. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, even though it's such a beautiful poetry. I think it'll be a rich discussion in your house, church. But let me share um, what I wrote in my journal after reading through this. I don't think Ruth suddenly left her gods to follow Yahweh. I think of the years that Ruth probably lived with Naomi and her family and learned about Yahweh. Maybe Ruth was curious of this Yahweh because this Yahweh was different than her gods. Maybe Ruth was intrigued by this God because she saw something in Naomi or maybe her father-in-law, Elimelech, or maybe her husband. I wonder if Ruth was drawn to this God as a result of her relationship to these very ordinary people. And I think Yahweh was pleasantly surprised by this Moabite woman's defiance, just like Jesus was pleasantly surprised by the defiance of another foreigner, a Canaanite woman, found in Matthew 15. Ruth wasn't being defiant just to be defiant. Ruth didn't understand all the cultural norms. But she is dedicated to her mother-in-law's welfare, though she does not need to be. And she chooses to follow this Naomi's God. Just like Madeline Lengel states, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, 
but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. It is the kindness of God that brings repentance. So the rest of the verses in chapter one, like you read, is what happens when Naomi returns home after at least 10 years of being away. And this is my last image that I wanna, I wanna share. And the women said, is that Naomi? I think there are multiple themes that come up as you read through Ruth. And I would love for you as a house church to talk about those themes. And I would love for you to email them to me because there are so many that I, I think that you guys will see that I haven't seen. So please email me them. But let me tell you about two main themes that I saw. The first is from this book that I read in this book. And Ben mentioned it in our December gathering. Um, and it says the repeated word in Ruth is the Hebrew word, he said, now I, H-E-S-E-D. Now the Jews would say a guttural <laughs> sound and I can't pronounce it, but he said, something like that. But this, it's translated as good faith, acts of good faith. He said is a quality that human beings share with God. It is the generous ability to put the interests of another before one's own. As such, it is the quality that Israel uniquely in the ancient world, perceived to be characteristic of God, Yahweh. And Israel understood God's requirement that Hasad toward one another and toward God be characteristic of humanity. From a biblical perspective, the moral ecology of the world functions properly when God and humanity are engaged in the perpetual exchange of Hasad, or Hesed, good faith and the acts that follow from it. So as you read through Ruth, see this theme and contrast it with the time of Judges when people were doing what was right in their own eyes. The second theme is the phrase that Becky said in December and that Ben also said in his teaching just a week ago, holy courage, not for the sake of greatness, but in your ordinary life, you will find that all the characters in, in Ruth had to make decisions that took holy courage. They had to make decisions about survival. They had to decide to go to Moab. Then they had to decide to go back to Bethlehem. And then Ruth had to decide to go back with her mother-in-law. You will see the small decisions that are made throughout the book. This holy courage to take the next step of said acts of good faith. So for some of you, your decision to get out of bed might be an act of holy courage. For others of you caring for your little ones in the middle of the night, would be an act of holy courage. Making that phone call and or starting that conversation is an act of holy courage. Going to the store and wearing a mask is an act of holy courage. Patiently listening to someone may be an act of holy courage. And saying, I am sorry to someone may be an act of holy courage. Ruth, Naomi, and as we'll see, Boaz, did not make their decisions because they wanted to someday be written in the scripture. They didn't want to be in the Bible or anything. They practiced acts of good courage, of good faith, in their very ordinary daily activities. So renew in this time of civil unrest, during this time of pandemic, in your very, very ordinary life, go with holy courage, practicing acts of good faith along the way. Wait for the Lord 
because times of refreshing, or rather crocuses and super blooms, will be here in the wilderness, and they are already here. But be sure to come back next week as we talk about chapter two. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Renew Community. This in no way should replace the formation within a community of Jesus followers. If you are looking for a church, would like more information about Renew, or would like to give financially to this ministry, check out our website at renewcommunity.org.